Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm talking to Dr. Penny Satori. Uh, now, Penny worked as a nurse for 21 years in a major British hospital and 17 of those were in the intensive care unit and she cared for many, many patients who were close to death. And during this time, Penny conducted a unique and extensive research into near-death experiences or NDEs of her patients. And in 2005, she was awarded a PhD for her research. Uh, she's the author of the international bestseller, The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences, How Understanding NDEs Can Help Us Live More Fully. And her work has received worldwide attention and media coverage, and she speaks at conferences all around the globe. And it's even received the uh, attention of His Royal Highness, Prince Charles. So uh, it's amazing to have you here, Penny. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for asking me. It's great to be here. Now, I know that, um, I think you've been studying near-death experiences for what is it is it 19 years now or yeah about 20 years now yes 20 years okay so there's probably not too many other people in the in the world with a like bed to talk to but what was it about i think the, i think the evening you're working a night shift like years ago that actually started you on this journey could you basically just describe that evening and what kind of happened yeah well i was um looking after a man and it was on a night shift and he was dying you know he knew he was dying he'd been in intensive care for about 14 weeks and we were doing everything that we could to keep him alive and I can remember on this night shift in particular um, I just adjusted the bed to put it flat to give him a wash and change his position and the poor man was in so much pain he nearly jumped out of bed in agony and at that point um, our eyes connected and I looked into his eyes and it, it felt as if I'd swapped places with him and I could feel like what he was feeling and all the, the things going through his mind and when it ended I was really really shocked and I thought oh my goodness what am I doing to this man he's at the end of his life he's got no dignity he's got having such a prolonged suffering death and I couldn't stop thinking about that all night long and I went home the following day and I couldn't sleep because it upset me so much. He was on my mind. And I phoned my colleagues just to find out how he was doing. And it was about mid-morning, say about 11 o'clock. And they said, oh, he died about two hours after you left. And after that, it was something that really made me realise that we don't understand death. We, you know, we, we kind of push it to one side and it's such a taboo subject. And so I started reading about death. And um, I started, um, I, I came across near-death experiences. And I thought, goodness me, you know, these people are saying that the death is a wonderful experience, you know, and their lives are changed after this experience. And I thought, is there anything in it? And it just really fascinated me. So I started reading more and more about near-death experiences. And I found that I, I became hooked on them, really. I became obsessed with them. And um, I think really this kind of sceptical side of myself said that they were just maybe some sort of hallucinations because, you know, during my nurse training, I'd never been taught about these experiences. And I'd always thought that they were just some sort of hallucinations. I'd never really heard of them, but I thought any sort of unusual experience must have been a hallucination. But the more I realized, the more I read about them, the more curious I became. And I thought, well, I'm working in the, the, you know, the best place I can to research these further. So that's what I decided to do, undertake my own research study. Well, I think, and one thing you mentioned there about like the skeptical side, like surely these are just hallucinations. But um, you actually, like, like further down the line, you've actually realised you can actually sort of differentiate between uh, a near-death experience and a hallucination in terms of actually the memories and the things they um, talk about. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. Now, in my research, that's what I did, you see. I wanted to see, was there any way I could compare these with hallucinations? And so I interviewed all of the patients who had been hallucinating as well. And so I documented 12 cases of hallucinations so I could compare these with the near-death experience. And what I found with the hallucinations is that when I in investigated these in depth, I kind of interviewed the nurses who were looking after these patients at the time. I looked at their medical notes and I realised that what these patients were telling me were things that had actually happened, things going on in the background so they, they could hear staff conversation, they could feel the things that we were doing to them and they, uh, this was happening as the, their sedation was wearing off. And with the near-death experience, it wasn't attributable to things going on in the background when I investigated those. Now, when I followed up patients who'd been hallucinating, they could later rationalise that it had been a hallucination. They were often embarrassed by their behaviour. Some of them didn't remember it. And, you know, they, they just said, oh, yeah, gosh, I'm really mortified that was, I was hallucinating like that. But when I followed up the people who'd had the near-death experience, they were adamant that this is a real experience, you know. And two of them in particular said, unless you've had this experience for yourself, there's no way you could possibly understand it. And so there were very significant differences between the two groups, really. Would you, would you say that? I mean, is, is, is there such thing as a sort of a, I don't know, a typical near-death experience? Or is every experience, like, completely different in nature? Or is there some sort of consistency or, like, different themes coming up again and again? Yeah, there are certain patterns. You know, they may start off with perhaps an out-of-body experience and they look down on the emergency situation from above. Sometimes they go through a dark tunnel towards a light or sometimes they just go through darkness into light. And then when they're in the light, it's usually something like a, a beautiful garden with lush green grass, vividly coloured flowers. They meet, may meet their dead relatives and they may meet a religious figure or a being of light. Sometimes this being of light could be associated with the person's culture. And sometimes they have a life review, and the life review is really. This is. I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned this. This is something I wanted to ask you about because I found it. I found this fascinating. Oh, it is. It really is because that has such a profound impact on these mm. people. You know, it's because it's not just like rewatching all of their life. It's as if they relive it, and they can see it all. All the significant things, all of the insignificant things they'd forgotten about. And the interesting thing about the art, uh, the life review is that sometimes they can experience it from a third person perspective. So if they've been unpleasant to someone or they've hit someone or something like that, they can be in their shoes and feel like what it's like to be on the receiving end of that unpleasantness or that violence or things like that. And it gives them a totally different perspective then on their actions. And also as well, if they've been really nice to someone in ways that they hadn't really realised, they can feel like what it's like to be on the receiving end of that as well. And one example is one man said, you know, this day I was walking through the back lanes to all, from my house and he said there was a, a man in the, the lane and he said I don't know what it was but I just really wanted to smile and I smiled at him and that was it but during his life review that man that he'd smiled at had been profoundly profoundly depressed and he said seeing that man coming towards him and smiling at him had given him a, a different outlook and it, it raised his spirits a bit as well so he said you know even like the smallest gestures that we have do have an impact on people as well. So that is fascinating to me. Um, very often as well, these people, when they're having the near-death experience, 
it's a lovely experience and they want to stay there. All pain disappears. It's really comfortable. It's described as almost ecstatic and joyful and blissful. But sometimes, the re well, very often the relatives say it's not your time. You have to go back. And, you know, very often they don't want to go back. And so they're, they're sent back into their body and they wake up and they just wonder what has happened. You know, they know something profound has happened, but they, they some, very often don't understand what it is that's happened to them. And in fact, there are some cases where people have revived and been quite angry at being resuscitated. <laughs> <laughs> so it almost takes away that sort of the big fear uh, of, um, you know, like being scared about, you know, dying and stuff, you know, actually... A lot, of the, a lot of the, you know, the feedback was actually, no, this is actually something, you know, peaceful and, you know, nice. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it has so many different after effects. And the most profound after effect is the way they face death after that, you know. Yeah. Most yeah. people say that they have absolutely no fear of death at all. Now, this isn't to say that they want to die and that they're ready to die. They're not, you know. They live life in a totally different way. But they say, when it's my time to die, I won't be afraid. I've experienced it once. I know what it's like. And it's a wonderful experience. And, you know, there was one guy in my research and he was so full of emotion and everything after his experience that he really wanted to go and tell all of the other patients not to be afraid of death. And um, when he was discharged to the rehabilitation hospital, um, he was talking to all of the other patients around him and he really raised the spirit of the whole ward, you know. And um, when he went home and I went to interview him in his home, he showed me all of the cards that he'd had from the other patients and their relatives saying, thank you for talking to my relative. You really helped him. So, you know, it can be really motivating to help other people as well. Amazing. And when you were saying about... Um... When they often one of the messages that comes through is that you know it's not your time. Uh, can you share the story of um, Sally? Is it, is it Sally? Um... Yeah. Now this is really fascinating because um, Sally was an amateur athlete and she had a near a, a really horrific head injury. Uh, she had an accident and during that uh, time she was hospitalised. She was in the intensive care unit. She wasn't expected to survive. They thought that she was going to die. And the doctor had spoken to her husband and said, look, it's unlikely that she will survive. But in the rare event that she will, she's going to have to learn to walk again because um, her injuries are so extensive. And during the time she was unconscious, she remembers having this near-death experience where she had this presence with her all the time. And it was this voice. And this voice said to her, you have a choice. You can stay here or you can go back. But if you decide to go back, you will be stronger. Now, she doesn't remember making a conscious decision to go back to life. All she remembers is waking up and she had these people around her who she didn't recognize. Now, she didn't know whether she was dead or alive at that point. And then she later realized that these people at her bedside were her family and she didn't recognize them. So she had to learn to recognize her family again. And then she did continue to make a really good recovery. Now, the remarkable thing about Sally's case is that despite this horrific head injury, a month after she was discharged from hospital, she actually ran a 10 kilometer race. But further to that, she went on then to become an ultra distance runner. And she's been in the Guinness Book of Records three times. And her greatest achievement is running across Australia from Sydney to Melbourne, which is 625 miles. And she did that in eight days without any sleep. 
it's like incredible, you know, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, she said the thing that kept her going was that she tuned into this voice. She can just close her eyes and that voice, she's in that place again. And she said, that's what kept me going. You will be stronger. And I knew I would be and I knew I'd complete the race. And she did. Incredible. <laughs> I love that. And um, one of the, um, I mean, it's a bit, slightly off topic, but um, one thing which kind of made me, I know, it's quite, it's quite funny how um, some of the sort of the side effects of um, some people who've had near-death experiences about um, electrical items and like, computers. And then there was a, when you were at the conference in Houston, could you, could you basically just describe that? Yeah, that's right. Now, some people get these changes in their electromagnetic fields and can't wear wristwatches afterwards or electrical items malfunction. And I actually witnessed this because I was at, the, at this big conference in um, the MD Anderson Cancer Center in um, Houston, Texas. And this is an amazing place, really high tech, everything there. And the beginning of the conference, it was all the scientific papers, people presenting about their research. And the last few days, it was people who'd had a near-death experience talking about the experience. And as soon as the people who'd had an experience got up on the stage, the lights were flickering and the microphones failed as well. They had to change the microphones. So I actually witnessed it firsthand as well. So what, this is all, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, like, yeah, this is, it, they don't necessarily know 100% the reason, but it's something in terms of their, their body's magno, what, it's just, it's, it's different, it's something alters or something. We don't really know what it is, but the electromagnetic field is altered in some way after these experiences, not with all people, but with quite a lot of them, really, and it can be quite disruptive in their life, you know, there's one guy I know, and he said every time he uses his credit card, he puts it into the machine, it won't work for him. So it can be really disruptive in, in ways like that. <laughs> um, I, I just I, I love all these sort of case studies because they really yeah, they, they paint an amazing picture. Can I ask you one more? The, the, the patient ten. Oh yeah, that that this is an amazing case, you know, and it is really quite unique because yeah, yeah. this guy was in my hospital research at the time he was having his near death experience. I was actually there looking after him. I didn't realise it until he regained consciousness. But it was um, like one morning and we decided to sit him into the chair. He was making a very good recovery, but he was still ventilated. And when you sit patients in the chair, it's good for their muscle tone and good for their breathing. So as soon as we'd sat him in the chair, I noticed that his breathing pattern changed slightly. And then the alarm went off and it showed that his oxygen levels had dropped a little bit. So I give him some extra oxygen by squeezing it into his uh, tracheostomy with a bag called an Ambu bag. And that resolved the problem. But then shortly afterwards, his heart rate went into a very fast rhythm, very briefly. And his heart, his blood pressure started to drop. And then he started to go grey and clammy. Now, all of these are signs of a possible cardiac arrest. So I quickly gathered my colleagues who had quickly gone him back into bed, by which time he was deeply unconscious. You know, I was pressing my, um, my knuckles onto his sternum, which would... Usually you get a reaction. If you press a pen into the nail bed, that evokes a reaction. Nothing. He wasn't responding to any pain. He wasn't responding to us calling his name. He was completely unconscious. His heart was still beating, but he was deeply unconscious. Now, I call, we called the doctor. The doctor came and reviewed, gave him some um, fluid for his blood pressure. The doctor went back to this emergency. And after about 10 minutes, again, this blood pressure started to drop again. So I went out to look for another doctor and the consultant walked into the unit for the first time that day. So I said, quick, can you come and see my patient? So he quickly came. He 
examined him. He shone a pupil torch into his eyes to check that they were reacting, which they were. And um, then we sorted out his blood pressure, gave him more fluids. And once he was um, um, certain that the patient's uh, con condition had stabilised, the consultant went back to his office. In the meantime now, he, the patient started to flicker his eyelids and move his limbs, all signs of regaining neurological functioning. So we were happy that he was recovering. And then in the meantime, he dribbled from the side of his mouth, so I cleaned that. And what I'd done is I'd used a suction catheter and sucked up those secretions and then put a pink lollipop into his mouth. And um, after about four hours, this man regained full consciousness and he was really, really sort of um, animated. He wanted to tell us something. He couldn't talk because of the tracheostomy. So the physiotherapist now, because the, the ward round had approached his bed area, so there were several doctors, physios and nurses, and the physio got a letterboard and he spelled out, I died and I watched it all from above. And the consultant said, oh, you'd better tell Penny about that then. <laughs> so um, when I interviewed him about this, he described being out of his body. But what is interesting is that what he reported was very accurate. He reported me cleaning his mouth and in the way that it was cleaned. He reported the and correctly identified the consultant as having examined him. And he also reported the physiotherapist looking very nervous, poking her head around the curtains. Now, all of these things are correct. And those things happened while he was deeply unconscious and his eyes were closed. So, you know, how did he, how could he see those things? You know, he was deeply unconscious at, those at that time. But he also then said he went into a, a pink room. And in this pink room was his dead father who was calling him. Um, his dead mother-in-law, who he didn't know but recognised from photographs. And also there was um, a man and he said, now, I don't know who this man was. It could have been Jesus, but it's not what I was expecting Jesus to look like because his hair was scruffy and it was long and it needed a good combing. <laughs> <laughs> but he said his eyes were piercing and I was drawn to look at his eyes as well. And he said, I was so happy and I wanted to stay there because all my pain had gone and it was just so nice and peaceful. But this Jesus man said, no, you've got to go back. It's not your time. And as soon as he said that, he said he started like it felt like he was floating backwards. And he said the image gradually faded before his eyes and he ended up back in his body. But he said as soon as he was back in his body, he was in immediate pain. And it was so bad that he wished that he was that he was dead. But the interesting aspect of this case is the man has cerebral palsy. And so for 60 years of his life, because he was 60 when it happened, his right hand had been in a permanently contracted position like that. And he, he didn't have much use of it. So for um, anyone who's listening, just the audio only. So what, you, just your wrist bent down, yeah? Yeah, so his, his um, hand, as if his clenched fist sort okay. of thing. And then after the experience, he misinterpreted one of my questions when I was interviewing him. And he said, oh, yeah, look, I can open out my hand. And now he can open out his hand fully. At first, I didn't realise the significance of this. But then when I asked the doctor and the physio about this, they said, that shouldn't be possible. You know, physiologically, his te tendons would be in a, a permanently contracted position. So to open out his hand, he would have to have an operation to release the tendons. Well, nothing like that was done. So that is something that we really don't understand. So I think it's really important because if we could understand the mechanism behind this, other people who are in who have got these similar ailments, maybe we could do something in ways that are non-invasive and not involving surgery. It could save the NHS millions in the long term, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, for example, if, if I'm 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 
at home, I'm listening to this, and all these things are just like absolutely fascinating. But in the context of this show, um, like how, what, what can we learn about this from live? How does this translate into, um, I don't know, how we approach life, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, that's one of the things I noticed with my research. You know, I was so busy trying to find an explanation for these experiences. I found that I was overlooking the most important thing, and that is the message of the near-death experience. And, you know, when people are in this near-death state, they realise that we're all interconnected and how, especially with the, the life review, how our actions impact on other people as well. And ultimately, our actions come back on ourselves. And so I think, you know, the ultimate message of the near-death experience is treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. And if you think about it, that is the message that is at the heart of all of the wisdom traditions. And I think if we all lived by that message, how different our world would be. So I think, you know, that that for me has been the biggest message. But of course, there's things like contemplating our own mortality as well. Because when we start to think about our own life and that it's finite, you know, we're only here for a set amount of time. We don't know when we're going to die or how we're going to die, but for certain we all are. And when we embrace that rather than be afraid of it, it, I think we we can apply it to our lives. And what I found with my research, you know, a lot of people say I'm morbid studying death. But I think when you start to learn about death, that's when you really start to learn about life. So I think, you know, it's it can be very empowering for how we live our lives. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I find uh, one thing which I heard you um, speak about previously, um, which was fascinating, was um, you talked about Darwin. And actually, um, basically, like, when we think Darwin, we like, sort of immediately think sort of survival of the fittest. But yeah. you actually talked about some of his work, which actually overlooked aspect of a lot of Darwin's work. Can you maybe just describe that? Yeah, again, like, you know, Darwin says that we actually survived as a a species because we have the ability to cooperate and the ability to love and empathise. And, you know, when you you apply all these things in your life, you know, if you're, I don't know whether you're aware of the work of Dr. David Hamilton, who's written a book called uh, Why Kindness is Good for You, you know, and all of these things really impact on our health as well. So when you're good to other people and nice to other people, not only is it it's contributing towards survival of our species it's also contributing to our own health as well yeah because it's, it's that we've just if you just think survival of the fittest it it's much more sort of ego ego based like every man for themselves you know yeah. and so it's actually interesting that darwin actually discussed this other stuff it's just not so well known that's what really jumped out that's right yeah and it's fascinating to me when i found out about it you know i watched them um, there's a great DVD called I Am, and it's directed by Tom Shadiak, who did the Ace Ventura Pet Detective films. And, you know, it's a lovely, really great DVD, and there's a lot of wisdom in it. And again, they, they were mentioning about Darwin in that, you know, and it made me think and read about his work. And of course, you know, that big bit of it, we only hear about survival of the fittest, but it's a lot of it is about our ability to cooperate and love and empathise. That's, that's so cool. And... Um, Again, yeah, final, final thing. We, we, you, you talk about consciousness and um, and the brain, which in, in a way which is really fascinating. I hadn't actually heard of it described like that before. It was um, you talked about the brain as a filter, um, and can you, yeah, what do you mean by the brain as a filter? 
Right, okay. Well, one thing I've looked at with consciousness is that we don't understand what consciousness is. And we've always kind of taken it for granted that consciousness is produced by the brain. So that when the brain stops or the heart stops and we don't get enough oxygen to the brain, there's no brain function. So there's no consciousness. But with near-death studies, uh, near-death experiences, what they're showing is that there's a heightened state of awareness in some people who have a near-death experience. And their brains are not functioning. So how can this be? So I think the most logical way of looking at it is to consider consciousness from a different perspective. So it makes far more sense to me to consider consciousness as being primary. So consciousness is around us all the time, but we're not aware of it because in some way our brain acts like a filter. We've got so many, so much sensory input every day, so many thoughts per minute that I think we're unaware of this consciousness that's around us. But there are times in our life when that filter action of the brain becomes relaxed. And rather than then the brain creating an experience like the near-death experience, all it's doing is relaxing that filter action. And so this, every, this consciousness, this heightened state of awareness is allowed into our everyday experience. And that makes a far better explanation for near-death experiences to me. So I think, you know, we really need to consider consciousness from a different perspective. Almost like, yeah, almost like the floodgates are open just for a second and you actually, it lets in what's, at the, what's actually the real, what's actually going on. Yes, yes yeah. that's right. Oh, that's fantastic. And how, how would you say, I think you've, come, you've insinuated a few of those things um, already, but how would you say that this whole thing has kind of affected you personally? Because um, you've obviously, uh, having all these interviews, talking to these people, you must have learned a huge amount, you know, yourself. But how, how, how has it changed the way that you approach and view life? Oh, gosh, it's completely changed me. You know, before I did my research, you know, I wasn't kind of thinking of things like this even, you know, and it's made me think differently. It, and I live my life in a totally different way. Now I realise there's one chance I've got to be in the body of Penny Sartori and I want to make the most of that and do as much as I can with my life. And before, maybe I used to be quite... Um, well, I still am to an extent, but not as much as I was, but, you know, a bit worried about what other people would think and things like this. But now I think, no, you know, you've really got to go with this and do this, you know. And I think the biggest thing for me is overcoming my fear of public speaking. I'm really, really shy. And, to you know, to do any um, public speaking used to terrify me. But I feel so passionately about my research and the message that it brings that I've had to face my fear. And as a consequence, I've, I've overcome it as well. So I think, you know, it's really made me live my life and it's, it's led me to have an empowered life as well. That's great. And uh, finally, uh, a couple of speed round questions to finish off. Like, what does a fulfilled life mean to you? Well, I think it's to live my life to the full so that when I'm on my deathbed, you know, I can look back and say, yeah, I did. I lived a fulfilled life and I was really happy with everything that I did and I've got no regrets about what I've done. Awesome. And what is one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? I think gratitude. Gratitude for everything that we have. You know, it makes such a difference. When I wake up in the morning, I just think, wow, thank you. I'm here today. I've got another day ahead of me. What lies ahead? And just gratitude for everything that I have in my life. You know, even simple little things that I take for granted. Being grateful gives me a different perspective as well. And are there any books or resources which have changed or had a big impact on you? Yeah, there's quite a few, really. Um, I think the work of Ernest Holmes, who wrote The Science of Mind, that's a really great book. I love that. Um, Joel Goldsmith as well. These are all these two are me metaphysicians and I love their work. 
And also something that I, I got into when I started doing my research, I read Conversations with God. And that was something that really gave me a completely different perspective, you know. And I think it's it's got some great messages in it. So, yeah, Amazing. I think those books are great for me. Neil Donald Walsh, yeah? Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. I'll chuck these in the show notes. And we're going we're gonna to put your one, obviously, in the show notes. And last but not least, how can people stay in touch, find out more about you? Yeah, I've got a website. It's www.drpennysartori.com. And I've got a blog as well, wordpress.com, Sartori. Um, yeah, so look me up on the internet and I'm always, you know, really um, keen to hear people's stories about their experiences. So please feel free to contact me. I do have quite a lot of emails at the moment and it takes a long time to reply, but I will reply to you. <laughs> Fantastic. Penny, thank you so much for giving up your morning. I really, really appreciate it. It's been so fun talking to you. <laughs> you too. Thanks. <laughs> Talk soon. Bye. Okay, thank you.